Uh, we are in the middle, uh, or not in the middle, we are at the beginning of the longest sermon series of all time. <laughs> We're going through the whole Bible this year. Uh, not every part of it, obviously, but we want, to, we want to look at the story of the Bible to see it in its fullness, because the Bible is the true story of the whole world. The Bible is the only way of understanding the world and all of its complexity, the only way of understanding humanity. And today we have the story of Babel. Perhaps you left this story behind in Sunday school when you were a kid. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the uh, city of Babel? Well, today I hope that it, um, I hope it's true that it's the only way of understanding the world. As a pastor, sometimes uh, it's easy to allow sermons to become a way of marking time. And two weeks ago when I last preached, little did we know that within just days, one country would invade the other. We'd hear the possibility of nuclear threats that seemed so impossible the day before. Economies would collapse. War would return to Europe in a way that it hasn't seen in six decades. And scenes of destruction would parade before us. All of that on top of the uncertainty that situations and events like this make to where no doubt that uncertainty lies ahead. And this week I talked with David Foster. And he told me that he was asked to join an international ministry task force that will be helping to train the Ukrainian people on how to deal with the trauma of war. It's actually something David specializes in in his long career. And he's been asked to help train those who are volunteering on how do you deal with the wounded, with these broken families ripped apart, the refugees, the children, traumatized by the effects of the war and all of the chaos, all of the uncertainty, and just the sheer loss of having to leave a life behind overnight. And he was on, said he was on a Zoom call this week, and as they were going through the training, he said you could hear the sirens going off in the background. And he said he never felt so small and insignificant. And at one point, he just simply told the people, he said, look, you don't know me, but I just want you to know you're not alone. The church around the world is behind you, and we're praying for you. And we love you. And he said that on the other end, you could just hear people weeping and crying. Just the sadness and the devastation of this broken world. And yet, how are we to understand such events? What do you do with everything you're seeing on your television? As Christians, how do we understand these events that are playing out before us? Because it's really easy to want answers. Who doesn't want answers? Yet it's hard to make sense of a world that often is just really more senseless than anything. It's scary when we realize how quickly the world can change and how quickly the world can be thrown into chaos as we watch the forces of evil march across the face of the earth, also seemingly unrestrained. What do we do with that? How do we understand this real life Game of Thrones? And how will it end? And at what cost? 
What do we do with the powers of this world? The Bible is not silent about the powers of this world. In fact, from the very beginning, God gives us a picture to help us understand the powers that are at work in this world. He gives us the story of Babel. And Babel is a blueprint. It's a story. It's going to help us see behind the headlines, behind the momentary geopolitical motivations, all the residual economic impulses, and it invites us to see a deeper spiritual reality that's playing out before us and to see this is not nothing new or this is not something new. It's actually something very old. And the story of Babel marks the end of a very important section in the biblical story. Because after this chapter, after Genesis 11, the story is going to start to look a lot different. And it's in these first 11 chapters of the Bible that God is setting the foundation and showing us what's wrong with the world. God has been showing us the power of what was unleashed whenever mankind rejected God in the garden. And each of these stories in these chapters reveals to us a deeper layer of the reality of sin. Each of them show us in a new way how it operates, how it works, what it creates, and what it destroys. And we've seen that as humanity increases in size and grows in number, sin increases and grows right along with them. That's why we see this continuous downward spiral of humanity under the power of sin. We see rebellion create more rebellion. We see sin produce more sin. Evil begets more evil. And mankind continues, even after the flood, to fall further and further and further into violence, jealousy, vengeance, and corruption. That's the baseline. And we see what God told Cain actually playing out before us. We see his words to Cain becoming a reality. Sin is a predator. And its desire is to consume you. Its desire is to become one with you. And at the end of this section, the Bible gives us one more story to shape our framework for understanding the reality of sin. It gives us Babel. And Babel shows us something very important about sin and how it operates. Because it's a story that pulls together everything that we've seen thus far about sin. And it puts it on a much larger, much grander scale. Because Babel shows us that sin is not just an individual problem. It is that sin is also a corporate problem. Sin will institutionalize itself into systems of rebellion and corruption. And it will invite you to participate. Evil will organize itself in this world. And it will unify mankind in its rebellion towards God by deceiving them with the power of lies. Sin will institutionalize itself and seek to build an empire. Why? 
because sin makes promises too. If you think about it this way, remember back in Genesis 3 when we talked about the fall. We talked about how God never took away mankind's desire for the purposes for which they were made. That's why Ecclesiastes says eternity is buried deep in the heart of man. God never took away mankind's desire for immortality and power and dominion and authority over our world. God let all of that remain buried deep in the heart of man, but now it's corrupted by sin. So what happens when you get a bunch of people together who desire power, glory, and immortality and purpose? You get Babel. You get man's attempt to build his own empire. Built on his own self-importance, his own self-determination, and his own autonomy. Babel is the blueprint for all the power structures in this world and how sin will create this spirit of empire based on lies and rebellion and corruption, and it will invite your participation. Why? Because sin makes promises too. Sin offers forgeries, counterfeits to the purposes of God. It offers a counterfeit kingdom that feeds on the sinful impulse of man that we can still obtain the glory for which we were made all on our own. And we've seen it from the beginning. Sin always makes its own promises. And the heart of that promise is that you don't need God in order to become like God. And as we look at this story of Babel, we said that the Bible is the true story of the whole world and the only way of making sense of it. And as we look at this Babel story, see if it doesn't explain in some way the reality of this world. See that if it doesn't begin to pull pieces together for you. Because the Babel story starts off simply enough, just like all the other stories that we've seen thus far in this series. Mankind spoke one language. The people began to migrate out across the earth, and they came to a land called Shinar. And they make a decision there. They decide to settle there. It's a place that's rich with resources. They had everything they needed. And so they collectively said, come and let us build together. And so they build a community, a city, and a tower. And they're unified, working together towards a common goal. What could possibly go wrong? So everything looks normal on the outside. It's kind of an underdog story at this point, right? Mankind is rallying together in this harsh world, trying to survive and seek security. And on the surface, everything seems to make sense. But just like in these other stories that we've considered, the Bible invites us to look beneath the surface and put together what we've seen and what it's told us thus far. And to notice that this project starts off with the hope of unity. You don't actually see any rivalry here. You actually see the people coming together. Sin is subtle. And it organizes. And it unites the people together with a common goal. They wanted to build a community, a city, something safe. 
Sin feeds on our desire for safety in an unsafe world. But already this construction project is unifying these people in rebellion because they're already working against the purposes of God. Because you have to put it together. Because when God made man and woman, he said to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, go out and subdue it. Because God's attention was to fill the earth with his glory and his presence through the work of mankind. But mankind doesn't want that story. Instead of migrating out across the face of the earth, they want to stay close. They want to localize. They want to centralize their power. And instead of depending upon God, they seek to depend upon one another. And now mankind is unified in beginning to tell their own story with their own purposes. So they build a community and they build a city. And at the center of this city, we see the heart of this project. They build a tower. And tower is a bit vague of a translation in English. What it's referring to, something like a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was a temple, a tall, high, pyramid-like structure with a tall staircase leading all the way up to the top where mankind could go up to meet with God and God could come down to meet with man. And this was at the center of this project. It was idolatrous worship. Idolatrous worship was at the center of this community, the center of this city, the center of this economy, and the center of this culture. What does that mean? Because obviously we're familiar with false religion in the Bible. But it's here that we're presented with it for the first time. Now it's organized, centralized, institutionalized. So what's the significance? We have to remember that words like religion and worship, well, they imply a lot of different things. Those are words that have a lot of baggage with them. Because religion and worship don't just simply imply general thoughts and ideas about God. No, those are words that also provide a framework for how to understand the world. Those are things that offer explanations for the origins of man's existence. Those are things that offer answers for what's wrong with the world and the purpose and the meaning of life. And those are things that offer answers for how we obtain immortality. In short, this tower at the center of this city represents that mankind is now living by a new story. They've adopted an alternative framework for understanding reality, and they institutionalize it in this community, this city, this economy, and this tower. But if you look at verse 4, it also says something else. And it adds another important layer. Because when they build this city and this tower, what's their goal? They say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And now the seeds of what we saw in the garden have grown and are bearing fruit in a different kind of way. Because in the garden, man said, I don't need God. I will go my own way. But it's here at Babel that humanity has built a city, a community, and an economy, and a culture based on that very conviction. And this is what Augustine would call the city of man. It's a counterfeit to the city of God, where God and his purposes have been replaced. 
But what have they been replaced with exactly? Well, to see that, we have to look a little bit deeper. Because on the one hand, you have false religion at the heart of this city. But on the other hand, this project is about making their name great. And those can seem like opposing and opposite ideas. So which is it? Are they doing this in the name of God or are they doing this in their own name? If we put it together, what we are seeing is the reality of the beginnings of false worship that will make man the center of the universe. They will believe in gods that validate their ambitions and their plans. Belief in gods that approve of their values and their motivations. Gods that existed ultimately for man's benefit and blessing. Gods that would make mankind great on the earth. Babel is a blueprint. And at this point we should ask, whatever happened to that serpent? Where'd he go? Well, elsewhere in the Bible, it teaches us that he's the ruler of this world. He's the deceiver of the nations. So where did the serpent go? Well, he's the foreman of this construction project. He's continuing to do what we first saw him do, deceiving mankind and rooting them in their rebellion and convincing them of their self-importance and their self-determination and their autonomy. Babel shows us how sin will institutionalize itself. It'll organize mankind in its rebellion towards God where they live as though he doesn't exist and together, collectively, they will live by their own story. The serpent will continue to deceive man who'd grown violent and rebellious and power-hungry. He plays off their desires for immortality and glory, and he whispers promises of power and dominion in their ears. And they're united together in their rebellion against God, living by this new story that places them at the center of the universe. And they build a community, a city, an economy, a culture, and a tower that flows into these ideals where their own greatness is now the very purpose of their existence. Babel shows us that even apart from God, man will still reach for the glory that is buried deep in his heart. Man will still grasp at immortality and seek the power and dominion they were created for. They will try to regain that mysterious kingdom that was lost in the garden, and they will build an empire of corruption. They'll build a counterfeit kingdom that's opposed to the kingdom of God, where he's no longer even considered. Babel is a blueprint. And then in verse 5, the Lord enters the situation. and says that God, see, he comes down to this community of people, and he sees that they're unified. Unified as a people, unified in purpose, and that they are unified in their language. And it says that it's only the beginning of what they will do. So in other words, they hadn't even scratched the surface of the corruption and damage that they were capable of. So what does God do? Well, he confuses their language so that they can't understand each other. He places an obstacle that disrupts their ability to be unified in their corruption. 
and the Lord scatters them across the face of the earth, and they become tribalized. And here in this mysterious moment, the nations are born. And they abandon this Babel project and each go their own way with their own people across the earth. But each of them still take the desire of Babel with them. They still possess the spirit of empire deep in their hearts and that desire for glory. The desire for immortality and power and dominion would continue to be twisted by the serpent. Nation would rise against nation. Empire would rise. Empire would fall. Each of them with their own towers, their own stories, and their own ways of understanding the world. Because Babel is a blueprint. Is not our world littered with echoes of Babel? From the Great Pyramids, the Parthenon, the Colosseum... We see the ruins of mankind's attempts to grasp at glory and immortality. We see mankind throughout history trying to satisfy that mysterious desire and impulse within them. A desire and impulse that only God, creation, and the Garden of Eden can explain. And after this chapter in Genesis 11, like I said, the story is going to start to look a lot different. And up to this point, we've seen God in these first 11 chapters essentially deal with humanity as a whole and deal with the consequences of sin. As humanity increased, so did their corruption and their rebellion. Sin grew with them. And so in these first 11 chapters, what is God doing? We see him setting limits and boundaries to the propagation of mankind's sin. Limiting its ability to grow and propagate. Limiting the damage and effects of sin. We see God kick them out of the garden so they can't eat of the tree of life so that they're not forever sealed in their fallen state. We see God put limits on man's lifespan at 120 years. Because who wants to imagine the damage Hitler can do after 800 years of power? God destroys all flesh except Noah and his family because mankind's sin was so great on the earth. And here we see God confuse mankind to limit their ability to be unified in their purpose and their pursuit of power and glory. God has been dealing with the effects of sin. He's been setting limits and boundaries to the propagation of sin but in the next chapter the story changes because God will begin a work to eradicate sin and he will no longer deal with humanity as a whole God's attention will now focus down on one man named Abraham because in these first 11 chapters God has set the stage for the cosmic plan of redemption to unfold and that plan of redemption begins with a promise. And it is so ridiculously poetic because in the very next chapter, God comes to Abraham and calls him out of what? Ur of the Chaldeans, which is just another name for Babylon, whose name comes from Babel. And what did God promise? He promised to Abraham, he said, I will make your name great. I will give you a community. I will give you a home. 
and I will make you a blessing to the nations. God's plan to eradicate the power of sin and his plan of redemption is rooted in giving promises. He gives promises and he invites his people to say, listen to my voice. Hold fast to my promises in this world of lies. I give you my promises and I ask you to trust me. And that plan of redemption will unfold against the backdrop of nations rising against nations, empire rising against empire. And sometimes something is so obvious we don't even see it, yet it's right under our nose the whole time. Because have you ever thought, have you ever considered, and you ever wondered, why is it that Israel comes into contact with every single empire of the ancient world? Every single one. Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman. God tells his story through these powers. Like the alternative is, why didn't Jesus just come to some remote people, live a perfect life on a deserted island with some people there, die for our sins, and then just send those people out? Why is it that God unfolds his plan of redemption by choosing the smallest of the nations and telling their story using the greatest empires the world has ever known. Why does the story have to be so grand in scale? It's because Babel is a blueprint. And just like Babel, the nations are not neutral. They are opposed to God. They all provide visions of utopia, they all provide visions for how to make this world in our image. They all offer their own stories for the origin of man's existence and the purposes of why we're on this earth and how to obtain immortality. They all claim authority and power and dominion and truth. They all mislead the masses. They're all under the power of the serpent, the deceiver of the nations. They're all Babel because Babel is the blueprint. They're corrupt from top to bottom, rebellious through and through, hungering for power and glory and immortality. Babel is the blueprint, and the nations are not neutral. And God tells his story through the greatest empires of this world so that he might show his power and his purposes, so that he might show that their lies are bankrupt, their promises are empty, so that he might have the glory above all gods and above all rulers and authorities and powers that would give his glory to another. And just like we see with Abraham, God reveals his power through the simple faith and trust of his people. In this plan of redemption, he's going to rescue them from the nations and from the lies of the evil one. And when they're faced over and over and over again with the power of evil in this world, God will reveal his power by making promises and inviting his people to trust him. God told Egypt, Israel in Egypt to trust him as they watched him decimate the Egyptian empire with frogs, insects, and the weather. At the Red Sea, when evil was overtaking them, God told Israel, he said, Be still and trust me and watch what I will do and the victory that I will win for you. 
And over the centuries, as Israel wanders off and they look at the nations and they want to have all of their power, all of their wealth, and all of their opulent and cosmopolitan ways, God constantly calls them back to trusting in his promises and his purposes for them. Why? Because where are those nations today? What of their power and their purposes? When Israel went into exile, Babylon, in Babylon, God said, seek the good of the city. Plant gardens. Decorate your homes. Be good neighbors and trust that I'm going to bring you home. God reveals his power over the nations through the faith and trust of his people. Faith and trust that's rooted in God's words over and against the lies that this world offers to you of power, profit, and purpose. And that power is ultimately revealed in the person of Jesus. Because didn't he too have to come face to face with the powers of this world? As soon as he began his ministry, did he not have to come face to face with the serpent? And what did the serpent offer to him? It was all the kingdoms of the earth. He offered him power, dominion, and authority. He offered him an empire. He offered him a counterfeit. He tried to offer him all the same things that the Father offered him if he went to the cross. So the serpent comes and says, you don't actually have to go to the cross. You can actually have it all now. All the power, all the dominion, all the glory, and all the empire you could possibly ever want. And Jesus says, no. Man lives by the word of God. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus showed that he was going to trust in the Father, and the serpent fled. Which should tell us something significant, that the world was now introduced to one over whom the serpent had no power. And then at his trial, Jesus came face to face with the superpower of the ancient world, the biggest mother of them all, the Roman Empire. He comes face to face with Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, I'd be doing what you do. I'd fill my hands with swords and my people would be waging war against you, fighting and clamoring. But I came to bear witness to the truth, to bear witness to the Father's purposes. And Jesus was killed by that very empire. If the resurrection tells us anything, it's one huge giant billboard where God the Father says, this is what I approve of. This is my king. This is my man. This is the one who will sit at my right hand and receive all power, all authority, and all dominion. The one who trusts perfectly in my words. The one who trusts perfectly that life is found in my promises and in my voice. And at Pentecost, we see God makes good on his promise to Abraham to bless the nations. Because when this community gathers, God comes down once again upon a community of unified people in the power of the Spirit. And they are filled with the spirits and they speak in tongues. And it says that all of the people from the surrounding nations could hear the gospel being preached in their own language. 
and the confusion of the nations was removed. The division of the nations was overcome through the power of the gospel, and they were united by faith and trust in the true and living God. And so what does this have to do with us? Well, what happened after Pentecost? Well, immediately after Pentecost, a new type of community was born into this world. A community that devoted themselves to the truth. A community devoted to a new story with a new purpose. A community that was unified together in fellowship and prayer and in dependence upon God. They had all things in common and they shared whatever they had with whoever had any need. It was a community unified by a different story, a different value system, a community that operated by a different economy and a different purpose than the rest of the surrounding world. And it's through that community of faith, the church, that God demonstrates his power. And it's through them that we see the power of a community that trusts in the promises of God. A community that's not known by violence, but by love of neighbor. A community of worship that rejects the lives of the surrounding world. A community that sacrifices and suffers for one another. And it was ultimately through this type of community that God would turn the Roman Empire upside down. Because even the Roman emperors would eventually notice that they were losing their grip on power and control. Why? It wasn't by power, wasn't by force. It was by Christians caring for the poor. Christian emperors wrote that we are losing control because the Christians take, can take care of their own poor and ours. They're indiscriminate in their generosity and their kindness. And they also noticed the fact that it was worship that bankrupted the Roman Empire because worship of the true God no longer provided the tithes and offerings and gifts in their Roman temples. And it was through worship that the empire was bankrupt. That's a powerful community. A community that trusts in the promises of God. So what does all this mean for us? I think sometimes it's really easy to just simply look at all the powers of this world and despair and completely forget the power of our God and the power of the type of people and community that he has called us to be. Because God makes promises and he invites his people to trust him. To bear witness to the truth in word and in deed and time and time again throughout the scriptures. This is how God reveals his power over the nations and exposes the lies and the corruption and the injustice of this world. He creates a people of power that trusts in his promises. And have we forgotten that worship is an act of defiance? against the lies of this world? Have we forgotten that worship is an act of defiance against the powers of this world that would snuff it out? Have we forgotten that worship here together is solidarity with one another, but also the persecuted church in this world that has to whisper their worship songs for fear of being heard? Have we forgotten that holding fast to God's word and trusting in his promises is an act of resistance against the lies and the promises that are made to you every day about how to make this world home for you and the hope that we can make this world a utopia for ourselves. 
Serving the poor and the destitute is an act of dissent against the power structures of this world that would leave them behind and silence their voice and fill their pockets on their broken backs. Loving your neighbor as yourself is an act of rebellion against the value systems of this world that would just simply tribalize this whole world and watch it burn. Teaching our children is an act of noncompliance against the voices that would teach them how to make themselves the center of their world. Babel is a blueprint. It's easy to focus on the powers that work in this world and forget the power of God and the power of the people that he's called us to be when we trust in his promises. And I don't know what the future holds and what lies ahead, despite how many articles I read on the internet this week. But we are in the same position as the saints of every time and every place that had to face evil in their time, that didn't know what the future held, that uncertainty was the certainty. I said, God makes promises to us, and he asks us to trust him. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray.